Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. I didn't introduce myself before. My name is Drew. I am a pastor here at Redeemer. We are starting a series this morning uh, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so this is where we're going to be camped out for the next number of weeks, maybe months. Uh, and if you're familiar with this passage, you know this is a really great letter. Uh, one, of, one of most people most people that I talk to is one of their favorites, and so it's exciting to be able to do this together. We'll take verses at a time, probably five, six, seven verses, maybe sometimes a whole section, and work our way through week after week. And we begin this morning at the very beginning of the letter, reading beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 6. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there with me, you can. If you don't, don't worry. It's printed for you in the worship folder. If you're at home, it'll be on your screen. It'll also be on the screen behind me as we read together. Uh, from God's word. So read with, along with me, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Say with me, the grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So question, as we start out here, when I say the word saint, when I just say the word, what kind of person comes to mind? When I say the word saint, what comes into your imagination? Probably some sort of caricature, and probably, not necessarily, but probably with some sort of negative undertone. But notice how the epistle is addressed, all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 1, to the saints who are faithful. And so, we can say a couple of things here at the very outset. A Christian is a saint. Saints are not a special class of people. Every person who believes in Jesus truly has been born again by the Holy Spirit, is a saint. A Christian is a saint, and a Christian is faithful. And so I want to just do an introduction by talking about both of those realities that Paul sets forth there in that verse. A Christian is a saint, and to be a saint means that you are set apart, that you've been separated, that you have some special purpose for your life, that there's a uniqueness about you, that you're not like everybody else. You stand out in a crowd. Michael Frost's word is eccentric. You're eccentric, which that word just means out of center. And it was first used in the Middle Ages to describe Copernicus's contention that the earth was not the center of the solar system. He was the OG eccentric. But every Christian goes through a similar process, a similar revolution. Instead of living for yourself, when you believe your ego is displaced from the center and moved to the periphery and you begin to orbit God. That's what happens in your life. And when God becomes your center, when he becomes the focus of your life and not you, then you become eccentric. You become weird. But it's not just a matter of personality or vibe. It's what you believe that makes you so different. That's what Paul says here. That you become a person who lives from your convictions and your commitments, as I said, and not just your feelings. Because in our world today, that is enough to make you weird. Now, there are specific truths that if you believe them can make you a saint. Let me say that again. There are specific truths that if you believe them, they can make you a saint. And all of that's here 
in its most condensed form, maybe the entire, in the entire New Testament, in verses 3 through 14. This is one long, run-on sentence. So English teachers, buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be hard for you, okay? I mean, this is terrible grammar. It's, 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 awful. it's difficult. It's punctuated here in the English, but it's not in the Greek. Paul is just, he got going, and he got really excited, and he couldn't stop, and he just, he just threw up all of this stuff. And so there's a lot here, and it's super condensed, and we could take a lot of time. You can divide it up, and I think the way we will divide it up, by the roles of the, the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity. So there's the grace of the Father to plan for our salvation. That's verses 3 through 6. There's the grace of the Son to accomplish our salvation, which is verses 7 through 12. And then there's the grace of the Spirit to apply our salvation, which is verses 13 and 14. And it's going to take us three weeks to get through all of that material. If that feels like a lot, one of my heroes of the faith, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher in London in the 20th century, it took him 26 weeks to get through these 14 verses. So imagine, imagine all the way out to July 4th and imagine that we had gotten no further than verse 14. We're working our way through this one run-on sentence of theology. There's so much here, truly. But I promise I won't do that to you. I'm no Martin Lloyd-Jones. So we're going to take three weeks, okay? And we're going to take the different persons of the Trinity. So here's the question this morning. What is the theology of God the Father? What is the doctrine about God the Father that, if you believe, it can make you a saint? And it's just this. The doctrine is about God. It's about the sovereignty of God. It's ultimately about the grace of God. So this is a doctrinal text. This is a doctrinal text. So this is a doctrinal sermon. The doctrines that we're going to deal with here are, are hard for a lot of people to believe and understand. And so we're going to have to take our time. This is going to be a longer sermon. I apologize. I've already apologized to the children's ministry people over there, okay? We have to be careful, take our time, and do this well this morning because there's a lot here that is confusing and even off-putting to some, but it's worthy of our time and energy because these are the things that, if you believe, they can make you a saint. About God, about the sovereignty of God, and ultimately, ultimately about the grace of God. So first... Let's see here that the theology, the doctrine that can make you a saint is a theology that's about God. It is God-centered, not man-centered, and I'll be, I'll be brief here. People often come to church because they have some kind of problem that they are trying to solve, and they've run out of options. So their marriage in trouble, is in trouble, or their kids are rebelling, they want someone to help them fix it, or they're lonely and they're looking for a place to belong, or they're brokenhearted after some kind of loss and they don't know where else to go, or they just have a sense of, of being religious that it's an important part of personal happiness and well-being, and they want their kids to have friends that are nice and safe and good people, and they want, they want their kids to grow up to be good people themselves. And that's why a lot of people are motivated to belong to a church. Philip Reef wrote a book in 1966 that was called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, describing the psychologizing of the self that was already well underway. And he said that culture exists to direct the individual outward, that the true self is something that is given and learned in communal activities and roles, but he was noticing that a trend, even back in the 60s, had started to take place that was moving people in the opposite direction. What he called what the psychological man is what he, what he, he, he noticed and observed really developing. And he characterized that psychological man by two things, by an inward focus and that, that thought of the self and thought of well-being and all of these things purely in psychological categories. So inward focus with psychological categories to explain kind of the world and even personhood and identity and so forth. Now, that was almost 60 years ago. 
And think about that. That was almost 60 years ago he was seeing that. We're well down the road into the very thing that, that Reef described and predicted. People no longer find their purpose and well-being and being committed to something outside of themselves. Happiness and fulfillment are almost exclusively about how I feel. The problem is, is we don't understand how profoundly we've been shaped over 60 plus years in this way of thinking and the way that it changes the way we participate even in institutions like the church. It has a profound impact. Because you see, if sin is a besetting selfishness, then you can see how this is not helping. It's strengthening this whole movement in the culture towards the, psycholog- the psychologizing of the self. It is, it's strengthening the roots of self-love and disobedience. And it's especially dangerous when it's baptized with Christian language and kind of pseudo-Christian theology. And here's what Paul wants us to see at the outset. Here's what I want you to see at the outset. Christianity is about God. It's not about you. It's not about your best life now or being the best you that you can be. The Bible is a revelation of God, not a rule book for personal well-being. And according to Christian, according to Christianity, the big question in life is how can I be rightly related to my maker? Because the root of every problem, the root of every sin problem, is the reality that we've been alienated by God from our, by our sins. And so what we need most is to be made right with God, not just to feel better about ourselves. And that's the issue. That's the issue Christianity deals with. Because peace and joy and psychological wellness, those things are important. They are, there are emotional and even chemical and hormonal components. And then there are believing components. And that's the stuff of Christianity, and they're connected, emotional wellness and good relationships and even justice and racial reconciliation and political activism and all of it, but those are all consequences of the gospel. They're consequences of the gospel, but the content of the gospel is God and man and how the two can be right with one another. You follow me? So Paul here starts with God because that's where you have to start. Now hopefully you end up with good mental health, and hopefully you end up finding community and good friends and belonging and hopefully you end up with with social justice and and the you know the world becoming more like heaven God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven hopefully you end up with all of that stuff but you got to start with God so Martin Lloyd-Jones said we must start by examining ourselves in our uh, excuse me he says we must never start by examining ourselves and our needs microscopically we must start with God and forget ourselves Or John Calvin, he said the same thing. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descended from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. That's the way this works. And it's why Ephesians is structured the way that it is. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about God. It's just one long extended treatment of of a doctrine of God. Then chapters 4 through 6 are the implications. The implications. See, you can't skip to chapter 4. You have to think your way through chapters 1 through 3 before you can really think out the implications of chapters 4 through 6, and that's what we're going to do. Okay, does that make sense? So here's the question. What makes somebody a Christian? That's the issue Paul's taking up here. And he has a very simple answer. You know what his answer is? What makes somebody a Christian? God. I mean, notice, Paul Paul does not say, 
You're blessed with spiritual blessings because you believed in Jesus. You accepted Jesus. You were baptized and joined a church. Now, all that's involved, of course, but it's not where Paul starts. He also doesn't say you're blessed with spiritual blessings because Jesus came down from heaven to earth and lived a life of perfect obedience and died upon a cross as a sacrifice for sins. And he was raised and he returned to heaven and is reigning over all things. Now, all that is, of course, true. It's crucially true, but that's not where Paul starts. That's not the first thing. To be said, Paul goes all the way back into eternity before the foundation of the world. And he says, this is the reason. This is the starting place. If you're a Christian, it's because of God. And so the theology, the doctrine that can make you a saint is a theology about God. That's what we see here. But it's also, secondly, a theology about God's sovereignty. So what the text says here in verses 4 and 5, notice the language. It says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, that word that everybody loves, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. And so you have this language of sovereignty that's here in the text. Now, Carl Truman has written an article in Touchstone. It's there. I gave it to you in the resources. I think it's called Divine Therapy. It's fascinating. And he argues that the antidote to expressive individualism and the cult of the therapeutic, which I've described this, the psychologizing of man, Expressive individualism and the cult of the therapeutic, that, that the, the antidote to all of that is the transcendence of God, the bigness of God, the greatness of God at the center of all things. That, that, that it's not a problem to be solved, that God is great and mysterious and he's sovereign and he's, and he's, you know, he's high in the heavens and has to stoop down from the heavens to look upon the earth. None of that is a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be adored. And when we talk about sovereignty, that's what we mean. A.W. Pink put it this way. He said, God is free to do whatever he wills to do anytime, anywhere, to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty uh, exhaustive. Daniel the prophet put it this way. This is Daniel chapter 5, excuse me, 4, verse 35. God does according to his will in heaven and on earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is the maker and owner of all things. He is the king. He is the potter. And if he is the potter, what does that make us? We are the clay. And so here's what this, basically to summarize this doctrine for you, as it's, and then we'll get into the text a little bit more. Here's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. God has every right to do whatever he desires. He has the power to do it. He also has the wisdom to always do what's best. And he has the heart to do it in love. And we can't stop it. And we can't demand it. We shouldn't question it. Everything that happens in life, from world events to the smallest details, volcanic eruptions and political, political assassinations and microviruses that are spreading, all of it is his doing. It all comes from his hand. We can't stop it. We can't demand it. We shouldn't question it. And therefore, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ... This text is telling you something crucial. It's describing for you what's happened. It's telling you how that happened. It's describing what's happened to you. And it says, you did not choose him, he chose you. You did not find him, he found you. If you're here this morning and you say, I believe, and if you're here because you're seeking spiritual truth, but you've not yet believed, here's what that means. If you're here and you're seeking spiritual truth, that means he's seeking you. That's why you're here. In John chapter 1, Philip, who's one of the disciples, it's a great little text. You should look, up, look it up later, verses 43 through 45 of John 1. 
Philip finds Nathaniel, who is evidently his friend, and he says to Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. That's, that's John 145 referring to Jesus. But in verse 43, here's what it says in verse 43. So in verse 45, Philip says to Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. But in verse 33, here's what it says in the scripture. Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. So who found who? Before Philip found Jesus, Jesus found him. And that's what the words here in the text, election and predestination, mean. That his choice of you before the foundation of the world, not your choice of him, is what makes you a Christian. Now, take a breath. It's going to be okay. This is, this is a profound mystery. It's, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. Paul doesn't try to explain it. Do you notice that? He doesn't try to explain it. He just states it. But this is holy ground. Lloyd-Jones said that you should read these verses on your knees. Because the goal is not to understand how the sovereignty of God works. The goal is to acknowledge it and to reverence it, not to argue about it. Because Paul has some pretty, pretty strong things to say about that. Our minds are too small. We are too sinful. So the goal is not to understand it. The goal is not to decide whether you agree with it. The goal is to acknowledge it, to reverence it, to worship God because of it. John Piper wisely said that there are some things that are good for us to know, even when we can't explain them fully. There are some things that God has made known to us, but only in part. So we have to be content to know in part. And we can't ask more questions than God has answered. Do you understand? I mean, we can't ask more questions of something than God has provided answers because those questions, in that case, easily become accusation. Every parent knows that children have to be made to learn things without knowing how they will be someday useful to them. Why do I need to know algebra? I don't know, you just do, right? Someday you'll understand it. But there's all kinds of things that kids have to be taught by their parents that they, in the moment, don't understand why that's important to know. There's quite a difference between a parent's knowing and a child's knowing. Are you with me? You understand what I mean by that? And if there's quite a difference between a parent's knowing and a child's knowing, imagine the distance between us and God and how much we may have to know without fully knowing how or why it all works. In Romans 11, Paul says there are depths to God. There are riches. In other words, we will never come to the end of knowing God, even in eternity. We will never come to the bottom of God. We will never know all there is to know, which means we don't know completely now. There's a lot here that we can't know because we're not told. We have to believe that what we do know is consistent with the parts that we don't know. And the Bible clearly describes God's sovereignty and man's responsibility side by side. It says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And it also says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Our own confession. Boy, I tell you, this is, we're getting doctrinal, right? We're quoting the confession in the sermon, but that's because it's important here. The confession says this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, but so as to not offer violence to the will of the creature. So even the confession has the wisdom to say there are two things side by side. God is sovereign and in his sovereignty, he never makes us do something that we don't want to do. And that's the mystery. Welcome to the mystery. We are free to choose however we want. But on our own, we would never choose to believe and follow him. And that's, and that's kind of the, that's the, the road with the cliffs falling on, the, on either side that we have to traverse. So Lloyd-Jones 
said again, and here, here's how the wisdom of those much smarter than me and much smarter than you have worked all of this out, this, this idea of election and predestination that's here. Lloyd-Jones said, if anyone is saved, if anyone becomes a Christian, it is entirely because of the mercy and the choice of God. But if anyone is lost, it's entirely their own responsibility. John Stott said the same thing. If anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credits is God. This paradox, he said, contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve. Again, we don't have to understand it. We just have to believe it. But believing it doesn't take the mystery away. It's the depths. It's the mystery that causes the doxology. Think about that. Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his thoughts. How unknowable are his ways. Paul's singing. He's, he's doxologizing God. He's worshiping God for the depths and the riches and all of the things that are too great for him to understand. It didn't become a stumbling block to his believing. It became a, a, a pathway. It became a doorway to his praise. He said, God, you're too big for me to understand. You do things that are beyond my capabilities of understanding and learning and knowing, and that just makes me worship you. And that's what's missing in so much of Christianity today. Because let's be brutally honest. It's hard to accept the idea of God's sovereignty. Not because it's hard to understand, but because we don't want it to be true. (laughs) John Piper, again, in the same article that I I refer to in, in your resources there, He said, election is one of the best ways to know whether you've reversed roles with God. Let me say that again. He said, election, how how you view the doctrine of election, what what you think and how you emotionally respond to it is one of the best ways to know whether you've reversed roles with God. And here's what he means. He means that if you question these doctrines because you don't like them, if you question them for whatever reason, make sure you're not requiring God to answer to you because God doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. He is the potter. We are the clay. And just as it's hard for a fish to know that it's wet. Did you know that it's hard for a fish to know that it's wet? A fish doesn't know that it's wet because wet is all there is for a fish. Listen, it is hard for a modern person living in the last 200 years to know that he is arrogant towards God because arrogance towards God is all there is in the modern world. So could it be that these doctrines here are hard because they so clearly reveal the nature of sin that we are in such a position of need. We are so utterly helpless. We are so totally incapable of doing anything for ourselves that to be told here that our salvation depends upon the election of God offends our pride, and maybe that's why we don't like it. But what if that's what you need the most? (laughs) I mean, what if it's believing this doctrine here that makes you a saint that makes you humble and hopeful and fills you with wonder and awe and makes God big in a way that he's never been in your life before big so that verse 6 you live to the praise of his glorious grace what if that's the case because I think Paul is saying here that that's exactly the way this is now on that note let's third let's work keep working through this though so the doctrine that can make you a saint is first of all about God and it's about the sovereignty of God but ultimately It's about the grace of God, and that's what I'm most concerned about. God's sovereignty, election, and predestination, they matter, and they matter because they magnify God's grace. So I'm not not so concerned about whether or not you can articulate these things with clarity. I'm not so concerned about whether or not 
you agree totally. Here's what I am concerned about. I'm concerned about whether you believe that you're saved by something you do or whether you're saved by something God does. Is it works or is it grace? Because without these doctrines here, it's works, not grace. That's the issue. So look there again, verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, there's a debate about where the phrase, do you see the phrase in love there? There's debate about where it should be placed in the flow of the text. Because in the Greek, word order sometimes gets mixed up. You add emphasis by placing words towards the beginning or the ends of sentences. And also, there's no punctuation, really. So it's confusing. So books probably have been written about where the in love goes. So if you have a King James Version Bible, you'll notice that it says that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. But if you have an ESV Bible, you'll see that they translate it in love, and then it goes with the next sentence, he predestined us to adoption. And there's no way to know for sure. One commentator said you can't decide on linguistic grounds, so you have to decide on theological grounds. And then he went on to argue for one over the other. But I would prefer to argue on theological grounds that it doesn't matter. That that's the whole point. And here's what I mean by that. What we're being taught in this text is that love is the beginning and love is the end and love is the everything in between of what God is doing in our life. Do you understand what I mean by that? Here's what the text is teaching us, that before you did anything good to deserve it, before you went out to pitch the bottom of the ninth inning in the World Series, you were loved. Before you were born, before the world was born, you were loved. And after all of human history has come and gone, after the last tear falls, after everything has been said and done, there will be love, oceans and oceans of love. And if love was the beginning, and if love is there at the end, then everything in between, everything God does comes from love. That's the point. So don't get hung up on predestination. Paul only brings it up to convince you of just how loved you really are, not to cast doubt in your heart about God and who he is. I mean, do you see how our sin and our unbelief twist things? The very things that are meant to reassure you of your standing with God would cause you to think badly about him. So here's the objection I hear. God's chosen me. I'm okay with that. Great. But what about the people I love? What if he hasn't chosen them? Well, hidden in the question is an assumption. And here's the assumption that your love is greater than God's love. Do you really think that your heart for the people you love is greater than God's heart for them? Do you really think that you love them more than he loves them? The assumption is actually an accusation. Paul, Paul wants to set us free from all of that. And to help us celebrate with him the love of God the Father. Look at that. God is a father. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable thing. We get to call God Father. And if you believe Here's what that means. It means he has set his love on you and he's adopted you into his family. That he's been planning for it since before the beginning of the world because that's what fathers do. They plan, right? That's what good fathers do. They hold their new baby in their arms and they think, oh, it's like 18 years times 365. That means there's going to be a day where she wants to go away to college. And so they open a 429 account and start putting money in that thing that she'll have what she needs when, when she gets to that point because that's, that's what fathers do. They worry and they plan and they fret over their kids. And God, we're told here, thought of you in eternity past. And from the moment you came to his mind, he's been planning and arranging to bring you to himself and to make you a part of his family. Isn't that amazing? 
I mean, we should just stop and wonder at that. Your whole life, from the big stuff to the smallest, the smallest detail has been arranged for by the love of God, your Father. That's how loved you are. And it's not because of anything you've done to be worthy of it. It says here, verse 6, 5 and 6, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, God has his reasons, right? God has his reasons, but here's the really great news. They have nothing to do with you whatsoever. That's really good news. Because it means if you did nothing to earn his love, then there's no bad that you can do that can cause you to lose his love. He has his reasons. And he doesn't really tell us what they are, but he does tell us they have nothing to do with you and I whatsoever. We have been loved by him and adopted into his family. And just think about adoption for a minute. I mean, we've got to kind of round to a close here. But think about, think about just the, the, the metaphor of adoption here, that we've been adopted into God's family. We really could have made this a whole sermon about adoption and probably should have. But there's so much I wanted to get to here. Uh, there's, a, there's a movie um, recently called Instant Family about um, Mark Wahlberg and uh, his wife who are trying to decide they want to foster kids and maybe adopt them. Uh, and, and it's really, it's a hilarious movie. It's a touching movie. It's, you know, tug at your heart, it'll make you cry, you know. So you should, it's a family movie. You can, you can probably watch it. Uh, but it kind of goes into some of the difficulties of adopting as well. But one of the funniest things in the movie is in their little class, their support group about adopting these kids, there is this single white lady that's in that group. And she's, her hair's pulled back really tight. She's really uptight. She's dressed in a business suit in high heels, and they're all talking about why they're there and, you know, what they're, what they're, how they're feeling and thinking about adoption. And when it comes to her turn around the circle, here's what she says, I'd like to be the single mother of, of an athletically gifted teen boy who I can help reach his full Division I potential, preferably African-American. And she sits down, and it's so cringy. I mean, in the main character, the woman, the woman like cracks up laughing because she doesn't think she's being, she thinks she's making a joke. She says, ah, like the blind side, like the movie, right? I mean, it's just, you're just like, oh, it's so painful because it's so ridiculous because, of course, that's not how adoptions work. It's not like, you know, designer adoption. I mean, it's not, it's not what you do. And later in the movie, the best part is later in the movie, this same woman, it kind of cuts back to her in another, in another um, support group. And she's talking about she's gotten a placement. And uh, she says, well, I got, a, I got a placement. And he's 14, and he does play JV basketball, but he's 5'2", and he's white, and he has red hair. And she says, and she says, she says absolutely no fundamentals whatsoever. I mean, it's just, it's hilarious. It's hilarious, uh, and, and, but I think there's an important lesson in it as well, and that is that in adoption, parents make the child theirs by setting their love on that child. They have no idea what they're getting, but it doesn't matter, and that's how it works. So here's, here's the good news that I get to come and declare to you today. God, if you're a Christian, if you've believed, God did not adopt you because he looked at you and thought, now, she's got real potential. If anything, it's the opposite. Listen to what he said to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than all the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loved you. So why did God love Israel? He loved them because he loved them. It's all because, it's all because of who we talk about, who we see here. It's all because of the beloved. It doesn't have anything to do with us. 
but there is a logic to it. And we're told here that it's because of the beloved. Let's finish with this. So look at verses five and six again. It says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose, to the purpose of his will. Look at this phrase, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God loves us in the beloved. Well, then we have to ask the question, well, who is the beloved? And do you have the ESV? Is it, we, we did it in the ESV. Do you notice in verse six, the beloved is capitalized there? That's important. Because who is the beloved? Well, the Bible answers that question over and over again. Jesus Christ is called God's beloved son. He is his one and only son. There are a couple of occasions in the gospel when God speaks from heaven about Jesus. And every time the voice from heaven comes, this is what it says. This is my beloved. Jesus. Not you, not me. Jesus is the eternal beloved of the Father who came from heaven to earth not to live for himself, but to do the Father's will. He died upon a cross, not just in love for us, but as an act of loving the Father with his whole self. He is the beloved, but if your faith is in him, if your faith is not in yourself, if your hope and your trust and your reliance and your confidence is not in you, but is in Jesus the beloved, if you believe in him, guess what? Then you become the beloved too. You're included in that beloved. John 17, 23. It's a little throwaway phrase, but it's so important. Jesus said this. He's praying to the Father, but here's how you would summarize what he says in that verse. John 17, 23. You ought to look it up later. Here's what, here's what Jesus said. He said, God sent him into the world because he loved us even as he loved him. God loves you if you've put your faith in Jesus, even as he loved Jesus himself. That's astounding. God, that's a, hello, are you awake? Like, that is astounding. I mean, that, that, is, that is the best, I promise you that's the best, that is better news than the Bucks winning the football game later on this afternoon, okay? That is the best possible news that you could ever hear in your whole life. If you are in Christ, God loves you even as he loved Jesus if you're in the beloved, you are the beloved. If you're in the beloved, you are the beloved. Okay? If you're in the beloved, that you are, you are the beloved. But it matters whether you're in the beloved. Now, believing these things, about, the, about God, about the sovereignty of God, about the grace of God, these are the things that can make you holy and blameless. But let's get that order right. Do you see those words there? I think it's verse 4. Holy and blameless. We should be holy and blameless. It says, he chose us in him, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We should be holy and blameless, but God did not choose us because we were holy and blameless. His choice makes us holy and blameless. And holy there is the same word as in verse one, the word saint, the one set apart, the one who lives a different kind of life, the one who looks different than everybody else, the one who has a special purpose laid upon them. The word blameless means exactly what it sounds like. It means Without blemish, it means without stain, it means clean, it means perfect. Now notice, it doesn't say we are blameless. Do you notice that? You've got to be careful here. Look at verse 4, really close. It says we are holy and blameless before him. It's a matter of standing, not practical experience all the time. In God's eyes, you are perfect, even though we all know you're not perfect. You can't be improved upon. 
as far as God is concerned. You are the beloved because you're in the beloved. Now, the connection, I think, between those two words is this. Knowing that before God, listen, knowing that before God, you're already holy, you're already blameless. That's what makes you holy. And perhaps that's the best way to describe a saint. Remember the question I asked at the beginning? How would you describe a saint? Perhaps, perhaps a saint is just someone who is practiced at being the beloved. Henri Nouwen said, being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence. So, how would believing that you're absolutely loved by God, by sheer grace, that you can't be improved upon, that because you're in the beloved, you are the beloved, how would that belief set you apart and make you different from everybody else. I think you ought to talk about that in the community group if you're part of one this afternoon. But let's just ask this question. What's the pathology between an adult who grew up without love versus someone who experienced a childhood where they knew they were deeply loved? It's very different. Any psychologist, any, any counselor, any therapist would tell you. Very different. Very different pathology. And it's the same in the spiritual life. Now, unfortunately, I'm out of time. I'm way out of time. But very quickly, what what characterizes someone who doesn't know they're absolutely secure in God's love? I mean, that's, I see it all the time. It's a person, I see it in myself. It's a person who's self-obsessed, who's full of guilt and pride and boasting, depending on how they're doing, driven, obsessed with what other people think of them and critical of others who feel superior to them and then jealous of anyone who's better or who's doing it better or who may be more received and loved by the community than they are. All kinds of pathologies that are spiritually very detrimental. But what characterizes the person who knows that they are the beloved? It's very different. For that person, the love of God has become their center, which means the ego has been displaced. So they don't think about themselves all that much. They don't compare themselves to others. Joy and peace and love just bubble up from inside of them and overflow to others. Such a person is a saint. A true eccentric really different because how many people do you know who are like that but don't you want to be somebody like that do you want to be somebody like that I do and I want it for you too because it's it's a source of overwhelming joy and contentment and peace but to be that we have to do the hard work of digging into these things to really believe them to be true Augustus Toplady obviously wrote a number of really famous hymns, but one of, one of them uh, has, starts with this line. He says, How happy we are, our election who see, and venture, O Lord, for salvation on thee, eternally loved, in Jesus approved, upheld by his power, we cannot be moved. That's what the love of God can do. So let's pray he would do it in us. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we thank you, and we give you praise. We give you thanks. We adore you because you are worthy of all of that. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unknowable his paths. There's so much. You are so big. You are so exalted. You are so great. You are so glorious. There's so much about you that we cannot understand. And yet that isn't discouraging. At least it shouldn't be. It is something that can be a comfort to us. That can be a wonder to us. That can cause us to explode in awe and worship and reverence of you. And I pray that that would be the case. I pray, Father, that by your spirit you would come and settle, settle our nerves over some of these things that we've talked about and cause us to marvel at your great grace. Every single one of us in this room, what we learn from Paul here, every single one of us in this room is a miracle. 
We're, we're, we're a collection of miracles because you're a God of the miraculous, and we adore you because of that. And so, Father, come undo our pride. Remind us yet again of how utterly incapable we are of ever saving ourselves. Undo our pride in creating us humility and joy and awe that we might live our lives to the praise of your glorious grace. Amazed, amazed, truly amazed and full of worship to you, which is the opportunity that we have here at the end of our service this morning. What better way for us to respond to what we've said here than to stand and to sing Patrick's not here, so I'll say it for him, to sing our guts out. Because you're worthy of just that. And so we offer it to you. It's the only thing we know to offer you. You've done it all. We've done nothing. So the only thing left is for us to stand and lift our voices and lift our hearts and lift our hands to sing and celebrate you. So help us come and do that even now in response to what we've seen here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me just read from 1 John very quickly as we leave. Here's what John says, by this is love perfected in us. He says, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God. And he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. This is what this benediction means, that if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then because you're in the beloved, you are the beloved, and you have no reason to fear. So go with no fear. Amen? And go and serve him, because he's worthy of all that we have and all that we are. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.